I'm a very spiritual person. I would guess most of you have heard someone say that at some point. Being spiritual is really popular today. It's cool to be spiritual. And one reason it's popular is because it's vague. No one's going to get annoyed with you for saying you're spiritual because it could mean just about anything at all. Saying I'm spiritual could mean nothing more than I enjoy a walk in the woods, being close to nature. I came across an article recently written by a lady who wants to keep our churches. She says it would be a shame to lose our churches in England, but she also admitted she hardly ever goes to church herself, and in fact, she doesn't believe the teaching of the Christian church. But she thinks churches are a good thing to have in our communities because they encourage good values. And this lady described herself as a spiritual person. Not, as I've mentioned, because she goes to church or believes the teaching, but because once, in her flat, she had a spiritual experience. She said, it felt like a jar of balm had been poured over my head. She didn't explain anything more. There's no mention of what caused that or what she thought caused it or what it meant. It was just an experience. And because of it, she classifies herself as a spiritual person. Now, I mention that not to pick on the lady who wrote it, but because her approach to spirituality is very common today. Interest in spiritual things and spiritual experience that has no definite content to it, no real commitment or allegiance to anything or to anyone. We like to come up with our own personal brand of spirituality. And it's helpful for us to realize today that our society is not new in this. The Romans took a similar approach. When they conquered new territories, they didn't try to get rid of the various gods people worshipped and the different religions that people followed. No, they just added those gods and those religions to their list. The more, the merrier. Let's all be spiritual in whatever way we all want. That was the kind of world the Christians in Corinth lived in. Corinth was a place big on spirituality with next to no idea about true spirituality. But in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul helps these Christians get to grip with true spirituality. We're in a section of this letter dealing with the church's life together and its worship together. In chapter 11, Paul spoke about men and women in the church, and he also spoke about the Lord's Supper, and now in chapter 12, he comes to spiritual things. So we're going to read from chapter 12, verse 1, down to verse 11. If you're looking for that in the church Bible, it's page 1153, or in the larger print Bibles, 1783. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. 
You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them to each one just as He determines. This is God's Word. Now, I would guess for most of us, what sticks out here is the mention of healing, prophecy, tongues, and miraculous powers. We read that and we think, ooh, what's that all about? And that's perfectly understandable. Those are pretty interesting things. And it's clear from this letter the Corinthians are very interested in them too. But what Paul wants to do is to put those interesting things in their proper place. Yes, they have a part to play in true spirituality, but they are not central. They are not the main thing. Paul gives the Corinthians and he gives us two elements that are central to true spirituality. The first is in verses 1 to 3. True spirituality worships Jesus as Lord. In verse 1, gifts of the Spirit is better translated as spiritual things. Paul will have plenty to say about gifts, but his topic is wider than that. And he knows when these men and women became Christians in Corinth, they came from a background that was terribly confused spiritually. Look at verse 2. He says, You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. We've heard about this in previous weeks. When Paul dealt with the issue of meat offered to idols, we noticed there were plenty of temples in the city of Corinth. Each god had its own place, and each god offered its own experience or it was believed to provide its own particular assistance. So if you wanted wisdom, you'd go to this temple and seek the help of this God. If you wanted help with your love life, you'd cross the road to another temple, because that was their specialty. Or if you were going on a journey by sea, 
if you wanted healing or if you were heading off to battle. Whatever it was, you would go to the relevant temple and seek help from the relevant God. That was pagan spirituality. But Paul says, when you lived like that, you were led astray. One reason they were led astray is that those idols they went to help for were dumb, meaning they were mute. They were unable to speak and unable to help. Now, that didn't mean there were no spiritual experiences going on at those temples. In chapter 10 said there were spiritual forces at work, but they were demonic forces. That's what lay behind those idols of stone or wood. So any experience there may have been, however weird and wonderful they might have been, they were experiences that led people astray. Took them in totally the wrong direction. Whatever went on at those pagan temples, the worshippers were being duped. They were being conned, suckered. Whatever spirit was behind those experiences, it was not the spirit of the true and living God. So Paul says to them in verse 3, here is the foundational test of true spirituality. Here's how you can know the true spirit of God is at work. He will cause people to say, Jesus is Lord. Not just Jesus was a nice guy, or even Jesus is a powerful figure, or even Jesus, we love you, but Jesus is Lord. To call him Lord is to acknowledge his authority over us, that he's our master. But in the context of the whole Bible, it means even more than that. It's to confess that Jesus is God. Not a God, but the one and only God. God the Son, who along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit constitute the Trinity. One God in three persons. So here's Paul's point right at the very start. He's saying, before we get into spiritual experiences and spiritual gifts, here is the one sure and certain evidence the Holy Spirit of God is at work. He will lead men and women and children to worship Jesus as Lord. In other places, the New Testament tells us demonic spirits can produce signs and wonders. They can give displays of power. But the mission of God, the Holy Spirit, is to glorify and cause people to worship God the Son. So before Paul mentions any other works of the Spirit, he wants us to latch onto this. True spirituality will exalt Jesus as Lord. It will shine the spotlight on him. He will be central and he will be preeminent. If that is not happening, then we are being led astray. Whatever experiences we might be having, they're not true spirituality. Whatever spectacular things might be going on, they're not from the one true God. 
And that's as true today as it ever was. Whether you're into spectacular spirituality or whether you're drawn to more contemplative spirituality or if you go in for formal liturgical spirituality, let's realize none of those things guarantee that what we're experiencing is from the living God. In loud emotional situations and in meditative reflective situations, if we're not being led to worship Jesus as Lord, then we are being led astray. Last week we heard that Jesus' self-sacrificing love is to be the heart of our relationships in church. Here, we're told, his lordship is to be the foundation of our spiritual experiences in church. Now, that is not all we need to consider, but it is the first, and it is the most important thing to consider. Then, assuming that foundation is in place, we're clear on the primary and central characteristic of true spirituality, then we're ready to think about other gifts from the Spirit. Jesus himself is the main gift the Spirit gives the church, but there are other secondary gifts. Abilities or experiences the Spirit might give to His people. And actually, Paul is careful to point out the Spirit of God doesn't act by Himself. His work is also the work of the Son and the Father. Notice that in verses 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. I think we're to understand that gifts and kinds of service and kinds of working are three different ways of describing the same thing. When a Christian receives a gift from God, it's not for self-promotion, it's for service. In verse 7, Paul will say, it is for the common good. And these blessings are given to the church by the Spirit, verse 4, and the Lord, verse 5, referring to Jesus, and they're from God, which in the context has to mean God the Father. So yes, the Spirit delivers the gifts, but they come from the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so true spirituality recognizes God as the source of all blessings in the church. Back in chapter 4, Paul said to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, none of your abilities or strengths are reasons for you to be proud. Nor are they to be used for your own glory or gain. They all come from God. That's the point here. It's underlined in verses 7 to 11. And as we read these verses again, notice how Paul is less interested, actually, in dwelling on the gifts themselves or even explaining what he means by them. His concern in these verses is to show all these varied blessings come from just one source. 
Verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So the main point in these verses is the one source of the varied gifts. And in a moment, we'll think about some important implications of that. But having just noticed that the gifts themselves are not the focus, we can't just breeze on by the gifts that he mentions. We do need to look at them for a bit. So here are four observations about the gifts. First, this is not meant to be a complete list. There are several other lists in the New Testament, and none of them are exactly the same. But even if we were to add all the lists together, even then there's no indication we would have a complete catalog of ways the Spirit might work in the church. These lists are given to us as general examples. But in practice, the Spirit's work in the church is going to be as varied as the unique personality and strengths of each member of each local church. The Spirit equips every believer to make a unique contribution to the church. So we're going down the wrong track with this, if we make a master list of gifts and then try to pin labels on each other. Each of us would need our own one-of-a-kind label. The items on these lists are examples. They are not limitations to what the Spirit might do through us. And that leads to a second observation. We cannot assume every local church will have all the gifts that are listed. There's no indication the church in Corinth was demonstrating all the gifts mentioned here. When we get to chapter 14, Paul will speak a lot about prophecy and tongues. They seem to be the big focus in Corinth at this time. But Paul does not lead us to suppose every church will be exactly the same. Or that every church should aim to be the same. So the lists are examples, they're not a complete catalog, and we cannot assume every local church will have all the gifts on the lists. A third observation. We have to be cautious about saying what these gifts will look like in practice. In many cases, we simply cannot be sure. Because Paul names them, but he doesn't explain them. For example, in verse 8, Paul gives two examples, a message of wisdom and then another gift, which he refers to as a message of knowledge. Now, if we were to dig through the rest of the Bible, what we'd find is 
Wisdom and knowledge are often referred to together as a pair. So, for example, Colossians chapter 2 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You find that often in the book of Proverbs as well. It's hard to separate the two things out and make a distinction between them. I suppose we could say we need wisdom in order to apply our knowledge properly. So maybe we could say a message of knowledge puts across biblical truth in the church, and a message of wisdom applies it and shows us how to live it out. There's no harm in trying to come up with those kind of explanations. But can you see how we have no grounds to be dogmatic about what exactly Paul had in mind? He just doesn't tell us. Prophecy is another one we need to be careful about defining too rigidly. Because the Bible uses the word prophecy in a wide variety of ways. The one we're probably most familiar with is connected to the Old Testament prophets. Men like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel. They stood up and gave infallible timeless messages from God. Some of it was predicting the future, but much of what those prophets said was presenting God's call or rebuke or warning in the present, calling people to respond in certain ways then and there. Those prophets had the authority to stand up and say, this is the word of the Lord. The only time you or I can say that today is when we've just finished reading from Scripture. The last people to be given that kind of infallible authority to speak for God were the New Testament apostles. As they preached and as they wrote the New Testament, they were delivering God's Word to the world. We read about that earlier in John chapter 16. Jesus said to those apostles, the Spirit will guide you into all the truth. That was not a general promise to all Christians. It was given to the writers of the New Testament. Now that the New Testament is complete, that kind of fully authoritative prophecy is complete. But that is not the only kind of prophecy we find in Scripture. In many cases, when Scripture tells us someone prophesied, it's telling us the Spirit of God was at work in or on that person without specifying exactly how the Spirit was working. We're not given any sense in many of those cases that they delivered an infallible word from God. Let me give you just one example out of dozens we could look at. It's from 1 Samuel, and the background to this is Samuel has just anointed Saul as Israel's first king. And to prove to Saul that this is from God, Samuel tells him several things are going to happen to him. One of those things is that he'll meet some prophets who'll be playing musical instruments. And Samuel says to Saul, when you meet them, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them. 
And then we read this. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Without knowing everything that was going on there, I think we could agree, whatever this prophesying looked like, it's a bit different from the kind of prophesying Isaiah did or Daniel did. Saul did not leave behind an infallible, timeless message from God. But the Spirit was at work in the situation. Everyone could see that. What happened, apparently, was that Saul joined in singing along with the musical prophets. And it was a sign, first of all, to him, and then to everyone else, that he wasn't the same old Saul anymore. God had changed him. God was active in his life for a particular reason. So like I said, we could go through plenty of examples, but it illustrates the point that when Paul mentions prophecy in 1 Corinthians, we need to be a bit tentative in saying this is exactly what Paul had in mind. We can certainly rule out the kind of prophesying Isaiah did or Jeremiah or Micah or any of the biblical prophets that are the left behind biblical books. This is not talking about the kind of prophesying that starts with this is the word of the Lord. But beyond that, we can only be tentative. If we examine all the instances where prophecy is mentioned in Scripture, in many of them there's a sense someone is being influenced by the Holy Spirit. Maybe they're being prompted to some action or given insight into a particular situation. Some of you will be familiar with Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher from the 1800s. Once when Spurgeon was preaching, he pointed to a particular man in the congregation and he said very specific things about that man's life. He didn't know the man, he'd never met him before, but the man later confirmed that what Spurgeon had said about him was perfectly true. The man was deeply convicted by the things Spurgeon had pointed out about him. And I mention Spurgeon particularly, I use him as an example because no one could ever accuse him of being obsessed with those kind of spectacular things. In fact, he said that kind of insight came to him about a dozen times. That's out of decades when he preached on literally thousands of occasions. So it wasn't exactly a regular feature of Spurgeon's preaching. And he didn't try to make it a regular feature. He didn't try to force it. He didn't try to engineer those kind of prophetic insights. I don't think we're supposed to force them or try to engineer them either. 
Here's another example from my own family. When I was, I think, about 11 or 12, I was traveling home with my mom on an overnight coach. I can't remember why we were making that journey. We must have been visiting some friend of the family. And as we were traveling home, we were dozing in our seats on the coach. My dad was at home, asleep in bed. He was expecting us to arrive the next morning. But he woke up in the middle of the night, and he woke up with a strong sense that he needed to pray for us very urgently. So he got out of bed, he got down on his knees, and he prayed. And then he went back to bed and he fell asleep. What he didn't know was our coach was involved in a fairly serious accident that night. We hit another vehicle on the motorway. And my mom and I were safe. I think if I remember rightly, we had some cuts from flying glass, but nothing else. When we finally arrived home and talked to my dad, it turned out he had woken up and felt prompted to pray at the precise time of our accident. Now, I don't think my dad ever called that prophetic. And I don't think he would say many of those kinds of things have happened to him. But I think it's an example of the kind of thing we're talking about. Some kind of prompting or insight from the Holy Spirit. And of course, it could be on a much wider scale, not involving just a couple of people, but maybe a political situation, for example. But the New Testament does tell us if we experience what we think might be a prompting of the Holy Spirit, we are not to take it as certain and beyond question. Elsewhere, Paul will say the kind of prophecy he's talking about must be tested. He never says that about Scripture. Scripture is to be accepted as sure and entirely trustworthy all the time. But Paul expects what he calls prophecy to be treated differently than Scripture. It's to be considered. It's to be weighed. It's not just to be swallowed and acted on without question. And if it conflicts with what Scripture says, it is definitely to be rejected. Now, I think we can say, if you feel prompted to pray for someone or for some situation, just do it. Prayer is never going to be wasted. But when it comes to going to another person and sharing what we think might be insight into their situation, that is where the need for caution and testing comes in. So if a fellow Christian came to me and said, I think if they're sensible at all, they will not say God told me. They ought to have the humility to realize that they may be wrong. They come and say, I think or I have a sense that God wants me to tell you this, whatever it is. How should I respond to that? Well, I would be very foolish to take it as a direct, infallible word from God. But if I had good reason to believe the brother or sister who spoke to me is a mature Christian, not given to saying wild things off the top of their head, 
well, then I might give prayerful consideration to what that brother or sister said. I might not end up acting on what they said. We're not to be constrained into a particular course of action just because a Christian said we should do it. Or maybe even use spiritual sounding language when they said we should do it. Once we move beyond the clear commands of Scripture, we are free to doubt what other people say. Our fellow Christians do not have infallible insight. But if what they said was appropriate to my circumstances, if it confirmed something I'd already be considering, if it shed light on my situation, then I might ultimately decide God had prompted that brother or sister. All of that was just to back up the observation that we have to be cautious about saying what these gifts will look like in practice. That's certainly true of tongues as well. But we're going to leave tongues until chapter 14 because Paul says a lot more about it there. Our final observation before we move on. There is no guarantee someone who's given a gift once will always have that gift. You'll notice in verse 9, for example, Paul mentions gifts of healing, plural. A Christian may be used by the Spirit to heal one particular individual of one particular disease or illness at one particular time. But that does not mean every illness will be healed. Nor does it automatically follow that if God uses a person to bring healing on one occasion, that person will be given subsequent gifts of healing. The person has no grounds for announcing, I have the gift of healing, and therefore I'm starting a healing ministry. Or for that matter, they have no grounds for saying, I have the gift of prophecy and I'm starting a prophetic ministry. We spent time looking at the gifts the Spirit might give, but we did notice earlier the gifts themselves are not the main point here at all. What Paul is highlighting is the one source of all the gifts in the church. They all come from God the Trinity. And because God the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity who is present in the church, all the varied gifts in the church are blessings from the Spirit. They are the work of that one Spirit. And that has two implications for us. Because true spirituality recognizes God as the source of all blessings in the church, therefore true spirituality does not look down on any of the gifts God gives. If every gift has the same one source, why would we ever act like some of them are less useful to God? Or that we have any less reason to praise God for them? If we look down on any kinds of service going on in the church, aren't we looking down on something God himself is doing in the church? 
something he considers important? In this passage, Paul has mentioned some kinds of service that seem to be pretty spectacular. Later in the chapter, however, he will mention helping as a gift given by the Spirit. In another place, we find encouragement and giving and showing mercy. Those may seem much less spectacular. Yet in verse 7 of our passage, Paul calls all the gifts manifestations of the one Spirit. We dare not have a view of spirituality that says only some works of the Spirit are valuable. So if the Spirit is not manifesting Himself in ways that I consider thrilling, then the Spirit is shortchanging the church. We cannot look at things that way. Isn't it a phenomenal blessing from God to have a church full of men and women who are helping, who are encouraging and giving and showing mercy? Maybe you long for big, miraculous blowouts in the church. And if those happen, we will praise God for them. But don't we equally have cause to praise Him for His quiet, unobtrusive manifestations in our fellowship? The small acts of kindness and love that often go unnoticed by the majority of people? Aren't those things wonderful gifts of the Spirit? Blessings poured out from our infinitely generous God. In the end, you see, true spirituality does not focus on the gifts, but on the God who gives them. Our calling as Christians is not to have some ideal picture in our head of how the Spirit ought to manifest Himself in our fellowship. Neither is it our calling to look at other churches or other Christians and envy what the Spirit has given them because maybe we think it's better. Our calling is to recognize what the Spirit is giving us in this fellowship and then to praise God for His wonderful goodness. That is true spirituality. It's built on giving Jesus his rightful place as Lord. And then it honors God as the source of all our blessings. Let's join in praising and honoring him now as we sing together spirit of holiness. And then we'll close with the splendor of the King. <laughs>